what's up, it's Denia Azure. Be sure to follow me all over social media at Denia Azure, D-A-N-A-Y-A-A-Z-U-R-E. And like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Denia Designs for you, facebook.com forward slash Denia Azure Radio. And be sure to subscribe to me on YouTube. Just type in Denia Azure. Hi, this is Martin Pratt. You're now listening to Denia Azure Radio. Hello, Martin, and welcome to Denia Azure Radio. How are you? Good, good. Just uh, walking in the door. Caught me just <laughs> as I came back to the block. How, how are you? How are things at the station? Good, good. So, Martin Pratt, who is the founder of Black Link and is thriving on Clubhouse, is my guest here on the Naya Azure Radio. So I will say that I'm everyone. one of the four, one of the five founders. I want to make it like I just found it by myself. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the five founders. So go ahead and tell us about Black Link and is thriving. How did that come to be? Uh, Dr. Uh, Adams, Felicia Adams, and uh, Sister Bianca Jackson have started a room on this app called Clubhouse, and it was based on a New York Times article that came out called Black LinkedIn is Driving. So you can Google that article. And based on that article, the conversation was, black professionals may be on LinkedIn, but are they thriving? And if they are, how? How is that possible? So this is the pandemic. This is a 2020. And that room turned into... Uh, now 51 weeks of showing up every Sunday at 9 a.m. to have this conversation where black professionals can unpack how they show up in their professional life, particularly on LinkedIn, the platform. Definitely. You know, I think what, what I love or love about black women striving is you really never know who's going to be in the room. And it's truly a place where you can network and build relationships. Yes, yes definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. That is so true. Every Sunday, uh, you know, people from the West Coast chime in at 6 a.m. It's 9 a.m. on the East Coast. Right. So, and for you, it's, it's 8 a.m. So it's, it's a rarity. Yeah. You know, to find 100 black folks, sometimes 200, that will, you know, show up at 6 a.m., <laughs> talk about their job mm-hmm. or talk about their professional life. Um, we thought that was really interesting. And as soon as Clubhouse, the app, allowed us to create a club, we did. And then also on LinkedIn, we have a private group for mm-hmm. the members um, to help each other out, to ask questions. We also have a private chat on LinkedIn to, again, support each other, you know, help each other through the day, help each other deal with things. Like, for instance, for myself, uh, my wife and I had three miscarriages, and we have a, a daughter mm-hmm. now that was born on September 29th, but she hasn't so far left the hospital yet. And because of her traumatic birth, she wasn't breathing for 14 minutes, uh, went into a NICU mm. for about six weeks. She's out of the NICU now and into what they call infant transitioning care unit. So um, ITCU unit, which is really trying to push her to uh, be transitioned home out of the hospital. But going through that process, and uh, my wife had a C-section, uh, been able to talk to other parents, and people who understood, you know, um, juggling a job, being at the hospital 12 a.m. to 5 a.m., then running home, getting some sleep, then dealing with clients at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, it definitely uh, challenges you. So I personally couldn't have made it without the folks in the club who poured into me and my family uh as we are still actively um, navigating the situation. So one of the things I find is that black people, we don't think of community 
as a superpower, and our community is a superpower. Mm-hmm. The ability we have to to show up for each other and be intentional, I call it using intentional intelligence. So you have an intent. How intelligently are you using your intelligence to get your intent done? Um, you know, I might use it differently than you would. So, but you use your intelligence the best way possible. That allows you to do different things with that intelligence. And, sorry, with the intention. So it's not like you're right or wrong if you do it this way, that way. It's just that's what you had at the moment. You did it the best way you could with the intelligence, the, the information you had. I don't think that we look at community as an intentional intelligence that we have. For me, uh, being online since uh, the 80, 88, um, and then in the 90s, then on something called New York Online, which became Black Planet and Black Voices, and of course, CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL. Um, one of the things about digital community is that it didn't really exist. In other words, there wasn't, except when Yahoo made Yahoo groups, then you saw people kind of grouped together with their interests, right. their, their, right. their passion and purpose. But I don't think that we, as black folks think of our community as an intelligence. So there's intellect, there's intel, and there is interest. And so that you can find all that in our communal, communal structures. Sometimes it can be a black professional organization like 100 Black Men, 100 Black Women, or the National Sales Network, or the Urban League has a, a, a uh, charter uh, organization called Urban League's Young Professionals. Not the Urban League, but the, the YPs. Um, you can find those three things, you know, uh, intellect, you can find interest, and you can definitely uh, benefit from that. But I think that sometimes we, we we just think of ourselves as I'm part of this organization, we're going to show up for our meetings, pay our member dues, and we're good. But black folks, because of our, the, the system and what we live in, um, we, ha- we, we need extra things to make this journey through this uh, colonial system. And one of those extra things that we use, but I don't think we think of it as something we use, is community. Not the black community, but I mean, whatever community means for you and yours and what that looks like and what you show up every day, whose graduation you go to, whose hospital you visit, you know, all the things that, that are part of the community. So with Black LinkedIn, we were able to create a community of intention on that platform for uh, black professionals on LinkedIn, but also on this app called Clubhouse. Definitely. Martin Pratt, one of the co-founders of Black LinkedIn is thriving on Clubhouse, is my um, guest on the Night Azure radio. I think it's, you know, really powerful how you talked about how the organization has wasn't just able to help you professionally, but actually emotionally and personally. And I think that's what a lot of people forget when it comes to communities is that emotional support, which is so incredibly important, especially in these times, in the time of, you know, of the pandemic, which I swear is never ending because they keep finding new things. Um, But, you and know, people, people don't want to do. People don't want to do what they're supposed to do. They want, they want to wear a mask. They don't want to, uh, you know, social distance. They want to go to parties. They want to go to holidays. And then we're we're in flu season, and you want to do all that. And the fact that we're going to get, you know, we're not going to be, you're going to get sick. And so when you get sick, you know, well, how well were you before you got sick? And you're getting sick in the pandemic. So you're sneezing, and you're coughing. You you know, most of us live with people, our mates or our partners or our children, uh, that's gonna pass around the house. You know, so it's like, yeah, we, we mm-hmm. it's almost like we, we're never gonna get out of it because we never a lot of people don't want to do the things that necessary to stem the tide. And then if you do, then you also gotta make sure that okay, your house is good, 
But in one of your favorite restaurants, the owner is somebody who doesn't believe in vaccines, and he's like, yeah, you just go outdoors, so it's, he doesn't require staff to have vaccines. And so then you got to decide, do I want to go to that restaurant, even though they have outdoors? Mm. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of thought process in us being able to stem the tide. And I don't think, I think, you know, once again, we're at the point where the hospitals, are, a lot of states' hospitals are at capacity. And we just yeah. begun to see that. We ain't we, we even in, you know, January yet or, or, or halfway through February. So we just started winter. And it's, the hospitals mm-hmm. are already at capacity. Lord. Yeah, you know, but you know, um, but the the fact of having that community and having that con- and having able to have those conversations, you know, that's why Clubhouse is, is successful in the way that it is, because it came at a perfect time when people were not able to connect the way that we typically can. We weren't able to go to concerts. We weren't able to go to meetings. You know, and so that whole situation where you're able to speak with someone, not just through a text, but through the power of the voice, is what made it what it what it is, right? You know, and I, I what I love about New York Club specifically is that all y'all do is talk about how we're going to thrive, how we're going to get beyond this, how we're going to help one another. And that's what makes what you guys do so powerful. The first time I came on, I remember I was there was a lady that was from Walmart, I want to say, and she was talking about you know the corporate side of Walmart and you know and the and the benefits that people don't typically see. A lot of companies don't understand that like some of the things that are that start out as lower lower uh, lower wage jobs, the higher you get up the more benefits that you can get, you know. And so it was really good to kind of, to kind of hear her and what she was uh, what she was looking for and all that and the people that were just so willing to help. Like, that's what I loved. She said, I'm looking for this. And, like, in this, out the gate, people were like, oh, I know this person. Oh, I know that person. Well, let, let me hear you on the back channel. Like, that is what Black LinkedIn is thriving is about. Building those communities building that relationship, but in the same token, the fact that you had people there that, that were able to to help you and your wife through, you know, um, through the miscarriages and through and dealing with the, with the baby and, and the NICU is what is going to allow that community to continue to thrive and grow because of compassion that goes into it. I tell people all the time, you know, the money situation is whatever, but that passion and that heart is what truly makes a difference in everything. You know, and when it comes to social media in general, I say the biggest thing that I say is if you look down your timeline and all you want to do is scream or cry, you need to change who you're following or who you're connected to. You should be able to look down your timeline and be able to laugh and smile and learn something. And if you're not doing that, what are you doing with your social life? Or your, should I say your social media life? Because you cannot choose your family, but you can choose who you follow. <laughs> so same thing goes for Clubhouse, you know. Yep, that's so true. You can choose what rooms you go into and what rooms you don't go into. You know, and I think the biggest thing when it comes to Black LinkedIn is, is, is thriving is the variety of businesses that are there. You know, you have doctors, you have lawyers, you have insurance people, um, you have people that are you're working, in, working in just, you know, average corporate jobs. Like, the, you never know who's going to be in that room and who can help you. And so that's why it's, you know, when you go into a room like that, you have to be very cautious in terms of, you know, what are you saying and understanding what your story is. Because those words that you speak can help or hinder you, depending on what you say. 
you know, when you come to something like that, your goal shouldn't just be to pitch everyone who's there. It should be to to connect with people so that they get to know you beyond that app. Because the way that social media works is taking the relationships offline. That's where the power begins. Because when you're able to communicate and build real relationships, that's when things start changing for you, for sure. And Ryan Pratt, one of the co-founders of Black Regions Thriving, is my guest here on the Naya Azure Radio. So we're talking about the group, but let's talk about your LinkedIn connection, sir. You have sure. 25, before we get, oh, 25,000? Uh, yeah, before mm-hmm. we get there, I wanted to, add, wanted to ask you a question about what you just said, though. I thought it was a good point. You said that, um, or maybe it's a point that, that I may uh, push back on. Uh, you said the... The thing is to take the uh, relationships offline. Mm-hmm. You said like that they begin online and you take them offline. Mm-hmm. I would argue in this time frame we're living in now. Like if you, if you had this conversation in 2019, I would be like, "Yes, girl, that, yeah, you got to get in touch person's face. You got to meet them. You know, you can't stay on these apps and that." Now that was 2019, Martin. 2022, Martin is going to be like. Uh, hold up, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, Snoop Dogg just built a house on the on the digital. I call it cyberspace. People call it a metaverse. Uh, his next door neighbor on this metaverse just bought the plot next to him for four hundred fifty thousand. Uh, there's a black sister who's in Canada who sold ten. Um, she sold thirty NFTs that are paintings of black women using 112 different illustration points. So nails might be done differently, the hair might be done, but each NFT has a different perspective of a black woman. She sold those for 300000 So I would suggest that our strength as black folks is going to be to be fluid on and off Line. I think we tend to choose one or the other, and that's been working for us some, somewhat. Not completely, but it's been working for us somewhat. Now I think we have to have our feet planted firmly in cyberspace and in real life. I don't think we can afford to choose one or the other or choose to, like, I'm going to shuttle you off into cyberspace but I'm going to leave you in real world or I'm going to go in the real world, I think, unfortunately, and it you know, makes things more stressful, harder for people to deal with, but there's also the, the strong possibility of more uh, productivity and, and more success in having, hey, follow my avatar over here. Um, Facebook yesterday released something called Horizon World to anyone. And so it was a beta, so now Facebook cyberspace meta world is wide open to anyone to create their avatar and maybe their virtual reality personal persona. That could mean right now there's everything you have in real life, none of that's in VR. There's no real estate agent. There's no um, food service certification. There's no, and the people are like, well, why would you need that? Because guess what? People want to create an artificial world and the real world. So somebody's going to be saying, hey, I certify this digital imagery of food as safe to eat. Imagine the person that comes out and becomes the digital safety mm-hmm. coordinator for virtual world. That's the problem. Hey, you don't want your avatar eating crappy food, right? <laughs> so my point is, though, is that um, I think it's going to be both. I don't think it's going to be any more of, you go here and you go there. I think you guys, you, you have to um, unfortunately operate in both and be fluid like that. True. The reason I said, so when I say offline, I'm just talking about specifically off the app, off the messenger, all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like not meeting people for real. We can, that's, that's what a video test is for. This is the day and age. Okay, but okay, okay, okay. I'm saying that specifically, yeah, like I said that specifically when it comes to like phone calls text messages, all that kind of stuff, because that's where relationships build. 
i.e. that's exactly why that's how you got here. You feel know I me? Mean? Like, yep. you couldn't just do this through infant. <laughs> got it. Got it, got it. Got you know it. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I think, like, what because what happens is you're building your no like, and trust factor. And your no like, and trust factor is what allows people or entices people to want to work with you and do business with you. Because ultimately, especially on LinkedIn, that's what the ultimate goal is, is to find people to do business with, to make money with, you know, to grow with, to thrive with, for sure. You know, so, but I, I do agree. Like, I just, I'm, I'm looking more into the NFTs, especially after going to Art Basel, which was amazing. Um, oh, I've seen all the different work. Yeah, I was yeah, there. Oh, excellent. I wish I knew that. Yesterday yeah, I was working on our show. So we, we do a nightly news show, and we talked about black creativity last night, and we talked about black creatives, oh. and we, we do a little bit of art. Uh, every week we we have a little bit of art news, like maybe one or two articles, because it's only an hour, so we only have like enough time to, to really hit five or six news headlines. But mm-hmm. every Thursday is our Black Creative News, or Creator, or Creativity News. So we talk about Black creators, or information and news about uh, art, or we don't really hit entertainment because that's not our that's not our lane. We really more or less hit when someone's creative and they're using that creativity. To further blackness, we we find a news article about that, um, and then some of the issues that that being a black creator or a black creative, what you face as that. So Thursday nights we we do that. So I'll remember you for that because I, I was going to talk about Art Basel, but we got into a, a deep discussion on um, Spotify has a new program called Song Shop, and it was all black creators and black. Uh, producers and musicians and they went for a three-day retreat and they have a new section of spotify that's supposed to feature these this art that came out of that um the thing was we were you know kind of being tongue-in-cheek about is like yeah and so for all that greatness and all that great black excellence you get 76 percent of one penny <laughs> you know so that part there that part yeah. that part there which is a whole nother with the whole nother conversation right um right. When it comes to the, the streaming sites, like, I really, it's sad because it's like there's a lot of work that goes into that. A lot of work that goes into the music and the artists do not get the benefit the way they need to. That's why, I was, you know, looking at how NFTs work and I just feel like from what I've heard, it seems like NFTs are giving the power back to the artist, which is beautiful. Yep. Um, yep but when, but it's interesting how you talk, how you said, you know, when you talk about creativity, how you don't, how you guys really don't even talk about the music piece, which I think is sad because because without music, you wouldn't have anything in terms of like movies, television, game shows, even when it comes down to elevators, it would just be silence, right? So the fact that, you know, that, that music isn't really something that, um, that people think about when it comes directly to creativity it's, it's well, bad because I think for for us we we try to stay in the lane of where we are. So we we're good in news, we're good at health, we're good at what's your name, uh, education, policy, politics, and and tech. But we're not. None of us are the people that I have as co-hosts or guests. They're not in in, a, in the entertainment space. So that's not just even music. It's boom movies. It's you know we do mm-hmm. occasionally. We haven't even talked about plays. So we try to stay on the behind-the-scenes stuff where I do find people like you, you know, who went to Art Basel or writers or producers, I do have those type of connections. But on the other side, I feel like you got a lot of entertainment-heavy other outlets and other places for it. Like like last night on Clubhouse, everybody was talking about just Jesse uh, Smollett. Smollett, so, yeah. But, you know, it, that wasn't something we, we even discussed because that's not our room. Right. That's not what that we're our name of our club is your black news and it's mm-hmm. nightly black news. But everybody's discussing that. So why would I necessarily for me, I want to curate a, a experience for people when they come at nine thirty every day, they're hearing something new, something interesting, and it feels like they can keep coming back. 
Versus right. like, oh, exactly. I got the same thing on CNN. I got the same thing on Fox. I got the same thing on exactly. Roland Martin. You know, yeah. So I don't shy away from music or anything because my wife's a singer, so I love music. But I just know that we can't cover it the way that Billboard or, you know, some other website or you guys can cover music. We just don't have the infrastructure to really talk about music. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and but that's but that's the whole thing about you know about collaboration is that like you know now yeah, now exactly. hearing this <laughs> now hearing this maybe somebody will will think about hey how do I get to be a part of this so that I can be talking about music you know when they hear the interview um, come out they're definitely gonna beat you up and be like hey I know, I know how to contribute to this conversation so <laughs> you know and I think um, you know when, when it comes to creativity. It's it's really tricky, thing, especially when you're if you're a black creative. I don't know how much I've touched on it, but like we have issues being able to keep our creativity because people like to steal stuff. So, especially when it comes to like designs and dances and things like that. So I don't know if y'all have touched on that, but that that's kind of where a lot of black creatives get get discouraged. Is that piece of how do you protect your things? Because it's tricky when it comes to certain um, when it comes to certain pieces, like fashion is tricky because people can say, well, you know, that it was just their rendition of it, which means it's a copy. You know, yeah, yeah but you're not that, giving um, credit to the person that actually created the darn thing. And I think that the NF we did talk about an NFT that was based on it's called Melanated NFT Gallery, and the woman behind it is a New York Times bestselling author, uh, N-E-A, Simone, S-I-M-O-N-E. And she um, partnered with legitimate musicians, family members. So she had an NFT that has Miles Davis' picture on it, but also some tracks of his music. And so when you buy that NFT, that NFT was curated by Miles Davis' bat, uh, bass player. Um, there's another NFT with Prince, and it has NF Prince image and a bunch of different unreleased things with Prince, and that was curated by um, Prince's guitarist. And then they have DMX, and DMX has a bunch of things. Uh, she has a bunch of pictures and unreleased tracks of DMX. So she's putting out NFTs in a gallery um, format, um, as a gallery owner, but then partnering with the musician's families or um, people that have rights holders. And those rights holders, to your point, aren't, she's not dealing with um, Sony or, or uh, whoever, um, I can't think of any other big, you know, record produced record uh, labels. She's dealing directly with the artists and, and or the artist's families and artist friends. And so that money is coming back to that community. She's a gallery, so she's taking her 10% cut, but whoever she sells the NFT to, this is a one-time, you know, NFT, and it's an iconic person of uh, that's black as a musician, and um, I think it's a dope idea, uh, and also you can write into the blockchain um, that this can't be, you know, that license holder has access to the NFT, but then you can revoke access anytime you want. Um, so I think that's really cool, and somebody in that same room was telling us about this one musician on Clubhouse that um, he did an NFT where um, he, he started at $11.11 11 or $111.11, 11, I think it was, and they did an NFT auction. And so as it got higher and higher, the, um, the utility attached to NFT, so it got to 1000 that meant you got access to his backstage at one of his concerts. When it got to eleven thousand, he ended up selling it for almost two million dollars. But wow. every, every person that pledged at, at every stage, they got the person that they didn't win the NFT, but they got a bunch of utilities. So he has, let's say, twenty five fan top fans now. Let's say let's say, let's say eleven top fans. And those eleven fans mm-hmm. have different experiences with him as a musician that he hard coded into this process. And the ultimate winner of the, the NFT auction got that one, you know, inexcusable, high quality, whatever, whatever, whatever. 
But my point is, we do talk about this. We talk about that process. And I think it's um, in the in early 2000s, I had a radio show on a station called 90.3 FM in New York, WHCR. And I was on for 13 years, and we talked strictly technology. And one of the things me and my co-host would always argue about, she was uh, 16 years younger than me. And so she was basically a brand-new freshman in college when she came into the show, and then she stayed with us throughout her whole uh, college uh, journey of getting a master's degree. But we talked about um, what was brand new then, creative commons versus copyright. And I was one of those people like, yeah, we, we need to copyright, we need to copyright. Ugh. And she was like, no, we don't. This is creative commons is so cool, we can let it go. And so um, I started a brand called I Love Black Women on Twitter and it took off. And one of the things that well, I was able to do because of that brand was getting a reporting gig with a company called Rolling Out Magazine. And the first time I had to go report as a digital reporter was for the BMI Publishing Awards. And at that awards was um, they were honoring Lucy Collins and George Clinton. So I'm on the red carpet, and on one side of me, this is uh, 2008, 2009, 2009, sorry. And one side of me is, um, is VH1. The other side of me is BET. Now, they have a cameraman, a boom, blah, blah, blah. I have an iPhone 3. And back then, the iPhone 3 had a great app called QIK and Quick. Quick app will let you live stream directly to YouTube. So I'm on my Twitter account. I love Black Women Twitter account. And I'm telling my people, I'm here at the BMI Awards. It's so cool. I've never been here before. I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a journalist. don't know what the red carpet is like. That's my first time. And I see Lucy Collins and George Clinton. I'm like, oh, my God, Lucy Collins. So I'm tweeting to people. And when you, you're live streaming on Quick, it's similar to what it is today, but this is, you know, 2009, so it was so cool back then. People are – you're seeing their tweets. And so they're tweeting back to me and showing on my screen. I'm tweeting back to them, and I'm showing them Lucy Collins and stuff. And then so Lucy Collins comes over to me. And he leaves George Clinton talking to H1, comes over to me. He's like, hey, brother, how are you doing? What's that you got? I said, I have the iPhone. Uh, he said, what, you, what what is that? What do you mean? And I said, I'm on Twitter. And I turned to his shoulder, and he's like, oh, this is great. And people are like, oh, my God, Lucy Collins. Ah! So we, we, then the bell awesome. rings. The bell rings, ding, dong. That's to get you to come in for the, for the ceremony. And so they never got to BET. BET people, cameraman, reporter. Yes, I didn't. You know, I wasn't. I was wearing my "I Love Black Women" T-shirt, so I'm known. If you Google my name, Martin Pratt, I love black women, you'll see me. Thousands of pictures, me with Nas, me with all the celebrities. Love the T-shirt back then. It was of just a letter I, my heart, and the word black women. Um, and so I, my Twitter name is, uh, I spell everything L-U-V because L-O-V-E was West Coast Productions, a porn company. So it was only us two on the Internet at 09, 07, 08 that said we love black women. It was L-O-V-E or L-U-V. So um, everywhere I went, anytime I did red carpet, I wore my I love black women T-shirt. Black Girls Rock, that's what got me on the stage, got me backstage, and all that stuff because I was the only person in, it, in the whole damn theater saying I love black women. So um, that said, they were pissed. And to, well, yeah. to me <laughs> is that I went into this ceremony, all hyped and everything. I got almost sick to my stomach when I started seeing old white men walk across the stage accepting <laughs> publishing awards for Lil Wayne or for Shaggy or Ooh. whoever it was. I was like, what? Super Slim is winning the award for... Touch that booty. I'm like, what? That's what? Huh? Because these are the publishing owners of that content. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it. Unfortunately, Lucy Collins, you know, unfortunately, I mean, not fortunately, but unfortunately, he didn't own, his, you know, Bootsy, uh, not Bootsy, uh, George Clinton. We all know what happened. But I didn't know at that time that he also didn't have – the, um, you know, didn't have his uh, his rights, so it was it was it was eye opening and, and effed up at the same time. And my wife, uh, her grandfather, his his music rights. What year was that? Your father's rights was some somewhere in the sixties. Her grandfather was a musician, and his stuff was stolen from him. 
So it's, we have this legacy of not owning our own masters and not owning our own rights to our own damn content, which is ridiculous. Absolutely. And Ryan Pratt, one of the co-founders of Black LinkedIn Insider, is my guest here on Denia Azure Radio. You know, and I'm glad you talked about the, the, the red carpet experience and because a lot of people don't, don't understand that back then, like people were just like, Wait, what you can you can do interviews and stuff with your phone, like you can go live stream, you can do this, you can do that, you know. And so you were definitely ahead of the times when it came to DET because they had a whole crew there, and they're like, why aren't they talking to us? What's going on? We're pre- like we're ready, we're prepared, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but but they that. weren't fun. <laughs> right, they only got George Clinton, and then Bootsy called George Clinton over. He interrupted his VH1 interview to come because Bootsy called him over to stand there and look at this thing called Twitter. Oprah had just got on Twitter with um, Aston Kutcher. So Twitter was this new, like, you know, like kind of clubhouse is now. So it was, right. uh, they, they, they were glaring at me, both sides of me. They were glaring at me. I, you know, and I'm going <laughs> out. And it, here's the thing I came with my book bag. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a New Yorker at that point, but I'm in my. In my thirties, I'm carrying a backpack and my phone. I didn't even have a tripod. I didn't even know about tripods at that point. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I'm holding the phone like there was no phone holders back then. There was no right. Like, so, you know, it was I was holding the phone in my hand, and I used to hold the phone in my hand, put my other hand, raise my hand to keep myself steady. That was it. No mic, no light. No, you know, none of that. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting what we can do, um, you know, if we if we allow ourselves to to dream big. And to uh, the guy that hired me, he was saying to me that, um, tell me, um, what is it that, uh, why aren't you working for me? He tweeted that to me. I'm like, because I don't have a contract with you. And so he came to New York and gave me a contract, and then I asked him, can I get office space? And he's like, absolutely not. And I was like, it was three hundred dollars a month. He's like, what office space in New York is three hundred dollars a month? I took him to it. Right. It was a place on uh, in Tribeca um, called well, it used to be it's gone now. Sunshine Suites, and Sunshine Suites um, was across the street from Ninety Second Y, which was um, um, right there at uh, at uh, Holland Tunnel entrance near Canal Street, and if you know that part of Tribeca, that's the building that around one of those corners is where Jay-Z and Beyonce live. So I told him, I took him upstairs, showed him the place, showed him the, the cubicle. With the, you know, he's like, you get all this for free Wi-Fi? And like, yep. He was like, I took him to the roof. I said, what's that across the street? He's like, I don't know, penthouse. And I said, look down outside. There's all these pop rocks. He's like, what's going on? I said, that's Jay-Z and Beyonce's house. You got me office crush? I said, we don't have the office. You said we didn't get it. Uh, yeah, we're getting it. <laughs> so that was 09, and that was the beginning of co-working for New York. We work hadn't opened yet. And Sunshine Suites had an office in uh, Tribeca, and they had one in what's called NoHo. So to your point, I got that. I got to that place because of the Twitter name. Um, but, you know, I, when I got – when you get to these type of places in, in history, you need to be ready. And so I knew that I needed a co-working space office. And I have been looking at the word co-working and been observing who was in that space and the one that I wanted. There were several others, but the one that I thought was the sexiest one was obviously the one across you from Jay-Z Beyonce's house. Right. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. So you were asking about my LinkedIn account and my LinkedIn that articulated to a whole different area. That's what I do. <laughs> I love it. Yes, I was I was congratulating you on the twenty five thousand followers that you have on LinkedIn. You've been on LinkedIn since the beginning. Um, I was one of the, one of the beta testers for LinkedIn Live, and um, it was really good. I mean, I think that LinkedIn has has definitely I've gotten my money back from LinkedIn. So the time and effort I spent on LinkedIn, and a couple times I paid for LinkedIn, I got my money back. So. Okay, yeah, because I was definitely going to ask you, like, because, you know, being able to go live on LinkedIn is a privilege, so. 
you definitely had, you know, like as I'm, I'm about to said, like, you know, there had that, um, you got into the religion premium and all that kind of stuff. And so, so I'm like, how in the world do you even get the permission to go live with this thing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that what, well, what I try to do with my real life and like you said, your digital life is be very, up. my father, when I was 10, stopped me reading a Wall Street Journal and I felt ahead of everybody because I knew what was happening. And that thirst for being ahead, there was a, there was a, um, newspaper called Cranes, New York, in New York, mm-hmm. and I started buying that paper. And um, I've always looked for what's the way to be ahead of the curve. What can I learn? Right. What can I do? What can I share? Who can I know that gets me ahead of the next person? Um, that probably comes from not going to college, not having a college degree, and being in technology, and being at some of the top companies in New Jersey and New York, and not having to deal with the boss that was that didn't believe in me. I dealt with, you know, fortunately I was blessed to deal with people even in high school who really believed. In high school I, I um, learned how to, to network to what's called an IBM XT and AT. That's before 286 and 386 and the Pentium. Um, my boss was a Spanish brother, brother Mr. Diaz, and he, he uh, worked for something called the financial planning unit of the Port Authority of New York and Jersey. So we had offices in every facility. So the airports, the tunnels and bridges, World Trade Center, and his job was to make sure that the fees that they were, they were calculated properly and they were planned out. So he couldn't afford to go down. And I understood that when he asked him to my high school and said, does anybody understand how to use a PC that won't crash when the mainframe goes down? And I did. So he said, what do you need? I said, I need to go to IBM and be trained on how to network them for what you're wanting to do. I don't know how to do that. So IBM called IBM. They're like, uh, I was um, 14. I think I was 14. Uh, No, 15, because I was like 14 and a half. And so I called IBM to, hey, I'm in New York. Oh, you know, like, you want to buy how many computers? You know, I was like, back then, you know, computers were 3,000 and something like that. And to sell right. six computers for a company like Port Authority was like, whoa, yes, let's do it. And so it went for two weeks training, and um, that's that's in my life. I've been able to find one opportunity, bridge that opportunity with something else, and come out ahead. But my thirst for knowledge and understanding has been a gift um, that's kept me kept me being able to go anywhere I wanted to without a college degree or without even uh, in networking or computers, there was a lot of certifications they people used to offer. I never ended up getting one though. I wanted to, and then I realized as as when Windows NT or other software became invalid, I was like, "Ooh, I dodged a bullet with that one because I didn't even." Um, I would have had a certification I spent money on and, and years uh, learning stuff, and then the software is invalid. <laughs> so uh, right. Linux did that. Um, and that kept happening over and over again. Um, I even taught a course at uh, TCI, uh, the technology school in New York, on PC. Uh, I taught a certification course. I wasn't certified, but I taught a course, and I was able to, in, the, in my salary, I got them to buy used computers that people could, we could dismantle and they could put back together. So their cert- PC certification course was they get certified and they get a free computer. It was a used computer, but that person knew how to build that computer from scratch after their course, and they could pass the test to be certified. So that's been my kind of story of like how I'm able to get to the to LinkedIn scenario because um, the LinkedIn world for me when I first started link on LinkedIn was just this connect to professionals, and I didn't know that many professionals. Um, then I connected to some of my old coworkers and stuff when LinkedIn started. And then I started connecting to, when I had the radio show, connected to a lot of college students who were on um, LinkedIn, you know, going to school. And they, we were taught to go to LinkedIn. We had the radio station. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kept building from there. And anytime so I met somebody, like, are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, but I don't really use it. Okay, well, I'm going to friend you. Okay. And um, mm-hmm. about four years ago, I had an idea I wanted to sell a course to uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Africa. And the course would be to teach them 
how people who came from their countries succeeded in America, particularly in tech. So I purposely friended people from those four areas. Uh, so Africa was mainly like Tanzania, Kenya, South Africa, Ghana, Gambia. And so I went through a whole, like, two years of nothing but um, accepting, repo- reposting articles from Africa. Like, what I would do is, like, if the, let's say the, the, the main newspaper in Ghana is Ghana Times, I would repost an, an article that's whatever the article from Ghana Times LinkedIn page was, and then the hashtag would be invest in Ghana and or be Ghana nice. life. And so when I friended people from Ghana, they saw my last post was about their their country. And I was in the U.S. They're like, oh, this guy, he understands. Hey, brother, how are you doing? I did the same thing for Pakistan. I did the same thing for Bangladesh. The idea was I was going to do a course that was only going to cost $3 their money and um, whatever that would be, our, our, you know, our money. So it was going to be a cheap, cheap course for them. But the butt part was um, it, it it was designed so that they would, you know, come back to me as the, the person in the U.S. They're trying to migrate and trying to understand, and I would liaison with them to get a work visa and stuff like that. So it was like a funnel, you know, onboarding people who are interested in coming to the U.S. But, um, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happened, like Trump. <laughs> and so now I have, of the 25,000, I would say, 10,000 of those people are from um, those four areas of the world. So it's not all, it's probably like 15,000, 14,000 out of U.S., but almost half of that is from global. Which is amazing because, you know, we live in a global society. So it's now, not just it about America. Of, yeah, yeah, right, right. It was a thing. Like now, that's the thing. <laughs> I've been really blessed to look like I know what I'm doing. Um, I just get really passionate, you know, in a moment. And 10 years later, it's like, dang, that was really smart. But yeah, you were a trailblazer. I was just saying I love black women. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be Black Lives Matter or I wasn't trying to help start Black Twitter. I was just saying, Mom and our family have a bookstore. And the bookstore uh, has been around for 23 years. It's in Harlem. It's on 156th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. And the book club, somehow, so I was running the bookstore for two years for my, my aunt and my cousin when she was in college. And then my cousin came back, and uh, we got some of the employees and stuff. But so I would still go to the bookstore. And somehow I always ended up on a Saturday where there was a book club meeting. And they would just, you know, it was 40-some women. Martin, why the black, whatever the black man of the day was at that time, this kind of stupid, it was Martin's uh, turn to answer for him. So I said, what can I wear <laughs> to the book club that was just shut black women down? Like, look, I'm not that dude. So I came over with the T-shirt. And at that time, was MySpace was popular. So I went on MySpace, and I be, I did uh, – my MySpace name was Culture First with a K. But I did the I Love Black Women on MySpace. It, it did not pop the way I thought it was. But in real life, that T-shirt was so jarring. People hadn't seen a T-shirt where a black man wore. It said, I heart Black woman. That's all it says. It doesn't, you know, it has no logo. It's just, it's just a message. Man, the they people get so triggered by that message. So I had a white lady. I was at a conference in New York. It's a brother by the name of Ray Ramon. He does a really great small business technology conference. And Seth Golden is this, this considered this um, voice in business. And so he was there. And um, before. Seth go and started talking. We were doing mingling. This older white man came to me. Why are you wearing this T-shirt? You're trying to say you only love black women. You don't love white women. So I was like, why would you take it that way? And so <laughs> she was she was really triggered by a T-shirt. So Seth Golden, we're all standing. It's standing room only. It's downtown somewhere. I can't remember where. But Seth Golden is like, um, uh, he's talking about, and I'll never forget because it's a really interesting term. Uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction. So it's a book called Weapons of Mass Instruction, and it's about a teacher, an eighth-grade teacher, who leaves the education force and discovers why we have education in America and how much of our education comes from King of Prussia, the country, and the idea is onboarding people into the Army. 
and what kindergarten does and all that stuff. So it's a free, not a free book, but it used to be a free book. Um, I'm not even sure the author is still alive, but he was 80-something when Seth was telling the story. So I was like, oh, I raised my hand and said, hey, can you just give me the title again? So he said, hey, how's that T-shirt, that branding you got on there, how's that working for you? Before I could answer, the founder of the conference said, oh, that's Martin Pratt. I love black women. He has uh, 14,000 followers on Twitter, blah, 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 blah. So I didn't even get a chance to answer. So Seth said, see, branding works. Martin, good job. And the white woman is red. She just, I looked over her and smiled. You know, it's just like, but um, I did not start I Love Black Women because I was trying to be a trailblazer or a person that, I was just trying to make sure every time I walk in the bookstore, they would not accost me about what this, you know, why you Negroes are doing X, Y, and Z. You know, I think that that's the most beautiful piece about it. And um, Martin Black was one of the co-founders of Lexington's Thriving, is my guest here on Denia's Radio. Um, when it comes to that phrase, I love black women, was so powerful back then, and I'm sure still is to this day, because there are so many people saying the opposite. And so it was refreshing for people, for some, for a black man to be saying that an edifying black woman because I think the biggest thing, and YouTube had this huge problem back in the day, when you type in the word black women, yep, yep, nothing yep. positive came up on the very first page. They worked on it, but it was sad. And Google had the same issue. You know, it was always these things about how black women don't do this or black women don't do that or I, well, black women can't get a man because of blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, it was a lot of a lot of videos of my space time period of these supposedly uh, I call them photos that was mm. Queens y'all need to do this and black women need to support the black man and blah 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 blah, blah. and so mm-hmm. that to your point those videos got way more views than as a brother who has a poem called a black woman smile. It's a beautiful poem. Yes. And that that video, I, I go to it probably once every quarter just to watch it, give it some more play. But I think, it, I don't know if that video's got a million yet. <laughs> you know. Mm. But a video telling for uh, what's the other guy? What was that? I mean, what was the other guy that used to make horrible videos of black, black, black women? Tommy Sotomayor. You know, those videos. Oh, that. That, <laughs> that, 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 yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> that's the thing. That's the problem with the algorithm. The algorithm responds to bullshit. Not that you know, responds to garbage. Yes. Absolutely. And that's, that's the biggest problem. You know, it, when, it, when it comes to hate and drama, that's what thrives online a lot of times, right? You know, and you have to be very careful. That's why I tell people all the time, be careful what you share because what makes things go viral is comments and shares. So when you think you're sitting up there and saying, oh, this is horrible. Why would they do this? Da, da, da. Click share. You're part of the problem. <laughs> you're the reason that this darn thing is viral that you can't stand because you had to comment. Because you had to share it and show all of your friends how bad this thing is. Ignore the bad stuff. Share the good things. Don't know why that's a hard concept to follow, but apparently it is. And that's why we have all these people that shouldn't have any views because they have no talent. <laughs> and all they're doing is um, spinning narratives and lies and cheating and stealing are the ones that are, quote-unquote, winning online because people are trying to be like, oh, you have to see this and see how horrible it is, not understanding the power of the Internet. So the fact that you were able to break so many barriers by saying the phrase, uh, by having the phrase on your T-shirt, I love black women. And the power that that provided you 
in terms of breaking into the media space. It's something in itself. But it speaks to why that that you can... Go ahead. Do you hear that clicking? There's a lot of static and clicking on my end. I'm not, I don't see it. I don't know if you hear it. It's not, not too, too bad. It just it's a little bit, but not too bad. YouTube. Soon as we start talking about YouTube. <laughs> of course. Oh, we are, we are, but we already know how that goes. <laughs> we already know how that goes. It was perfect until it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm well aware that people have a problem when we talk about edifying black people and black women specifically, because that's where so many positive things have happened in this country. When we talk, you know, we talked, you stated that, you know, you weren't trying to be Black Lives Matter. Well, Black Lives Matter wasn't trying to be Black Lives Matter when they started. They were just trying, and it was never about. Nobody else matters. It's about black lives matter, too. Black women need love, too. Black black women matter, too. Say her name was about the fact that black women were dying in the streets, and you would hear the story, but you would never hear the name of the person who was the victim, but you would always hear about the person who killed them. And that was edified more than the person who lost their life for no reason whatsoever, right? So the fact that you talked about loving black women and that's what changed the game says a lot about who you are because you took a chance because I guarantee, I know how Twitter works. I'm sure that wasn't, I'm sure there were times that that wasn't very fun. I'm very aware of the kind of mess that goes on on Twitter and in terms of the, you know, a white supremacy and all of that. So I'm sure that was a very interesting situation when you were doing that <laughs> as well. But it brought you to a place where you were able to to um, outshine mainstream media showing the power of independent media. And that's what I think is the best part, is you show the power of independent media, you show the power other people. You show the power that can come when you speak life into people instead of just putting them down. The reason, and I'm going to tell you why why, um, Bootsy Collins and George Clinton came to you because you put people on pedestals. BT used to, and they're getting back to a kind of, but BT has not been for black people for a very long time. When they took out, what was it, Teen Summit, I knew things were going down. (laughs) Because that was that piece that was showing how the youth was growing and thriving and understood what was going on in the world and how it affected them. And it was giving power to the youth. But they got nervous. So they pulled it Well, back. on that well, I got to send you a video uh, talking about TV1 and BET that Byron Allen did. And it was a really interesting interview he did with Roland Martin when he was suing, when he was at the Supreme Court for black media. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, I interrupt you for a reason, the, the black folks that own media outlets as they say, all black folks in camp folks. So mm-hmm. there was always, and this is from BET employees, there was always, there was never going to be a teen summit or a teen you know, news outlet when it came to BET. Bob Johnson's wife forced them to create that. that he did not want to create that at all. And then I'm not totally a fan of Roland, but the um, powers that be, uh, uh, over there at TV One, did an interview on YouTube explaining why they took the news off. And most of every reason everybody gives is that they can make more money with a game show than they can with a positive show. Ooh. And so this is our own people. This is not mm-hmm. some white guy sitting, you know, sitting in some office somewhere. It's our own folks saying, 
we rather entertain than educate. Mm. Y'all are hearing this, right? We'd rather entertain than educate. But education is what is allowing people to entertain. That's what, that, that's where the misconception is. Education is what is allowed. The whole thing when it comes to NFTs and cyberspace in general, well, the people that were educated that decided to come together to build things, it takes education to build things. You have to be able to read and understand and comprehend and build systems. But y'all don't want to educate these people because you know the power of education. And you yep. are where you are because of the power of education and edification. And I want to thank you for what you have done and what you are continuing to do because what you are doing is changing lives. So the final question that I have for you, because, man, you are incredible. And make sure you check out Black LinkedIn is thriving on Clubhouse. Join because it is an amazing time. Connect with Martin Pratt. He's doing so many phenomenal, phenomenal things. So, sir, my final question today is, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, I am powered and I am formed. Y'all see? You see why he's incredible, right? <laughs> he said he wants his legacy to be the fact that he empowered and he informed. And that's exactly what Next Legacy is about. That's exactly what Denia Azure Radio is about. Martin, thank you so much for coming on. You are absolutely incredible. This was such an amazing interview. I learned so many things. And continued prayers to you and your wife and your family. You have a blessed holiday for sure. Thank you. Thank you and to the audience. Hey, what's up? It's Denia Azure. Be sure to follow me all over social media at Denia Azure, D-A-N-A-Y-A-A-Z-U-R-E. And like the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Denia Designs for you, facebook.com forward slash Denia Azure Radio. And be sure to subscribe to me on YouTube. Just type in Denia Azure.